I'm Kate, and welcome to the Picture House Podcast, where we discuss the architecture, design, and history of America's early cinemas. We hope that telling the stories of these places and the people associated with them will help you explore their place in our collective memory and our communities today. Welcome to the second episode in our series on the Movie Palace. Several episodes back, we talked about Thomas Lamb and the small Translux theaters he designed later in his career. We purposely avoided talking about what he's best known for, anticipating this very episode. Lamb looms large in theater architecture, a master of the Movie Palace and prolific to boot. He's generally regarded to be one, if not the, best movie theater designer from the first generation of them. By the end of his life, he'd be credited with designing more than 300 theaters globally. There's more than enough to talk about when it comes to Lamb, so without further ado. Thomas White Lamb was born in Dundee, Scotland, on May 5th, 1871, to Sarah and William Lamb. They immigrated to America in 1886, with a little asterisk here. Sources differ on these dates. I've chosen to use the birth date and immigration year that were provided by Lamb's wife, Alfreda, on the application for naturalization that she filed after Lamb passed away, she having been Canadian-born. Per the 1892 census, William, 42, Sarah, 43, and Thomas, 22, were living in Brooklyn. Thomas's occupation was listed as architect at this time. He studied at the Cooper Union in New York City from 1893 to 1898. During his time there, he was awarded certificates in a wide array of topics. In the spring of 1898, the Cooper Medal and Diplomas and the degree of Bachelor of Science were awarded to 22 graduates who had completed the five years course in the Knight School of Science. Thomas Lamb was one of them. Before he even completed his degree program, he was employed as an inspector with the New York City Department of Building, and he stayed with them after graduating. At the turn of the century, Lamb was still employed with the city. In one instance, he was listed as an engineer overseeing tests for the fireproofing of buildings. Sometime over the course of the next few years, it appears that he left the employ of the city of New York to strike out on his own. In 1904 and 1905, he was named as the architect on several small educational and residential building projects. He was also hired, in 1904, to complete some alterations at the Gotham Theater, a vaudeville house at 165 East 125th Street. It appears to have been Lamb's first theater-related commission. Another early foray into theater architecture appears to have been a redesign of the American Theater, which was located at 260 West 42nd Street in New York. Lamb was hired to replace the building's open-air roof garden with an enclosed theater. Opened in July 1909, Lamb's Theater had a capacity of about 1,400. According to the New York Times, notable in the design were trunks of imitation trees that formed the proscenium supports to the stage, and the roof, studded with tiny twinkling electric lights, is designed to carry out the impression of being under the stars. Tree-entwined and foliage-hung walks lead to two open-air gardens where patrons may sit at rustic tables for refreshments. The woodwork is disguised with real birch bark, and scores of palms and shrubs add to the attractiveness of the outdoor setting. 
While strictly a stage theater, the work put Lamb a step closer to movie theaters. Lamb's next theater commission, which came in 1909, was for the City Theater at 14th Street and Irving Place. Patrons entered the French Renaissance Theater through a lofty, arched and domed two-story lobby on 14th Street. The 2,200-plus seat theater was not wanting in acoustic properties, and its sight lines were remarkably good. While architecturally, the spacious curved galleries suggest an opera house more than a theater, the city was both a vaudeville and motion picture house, and so represents an important milestone in Lamb's progression toward movie palace master architect. The city commission was also significant as the beginning of Lamb's relationship with William Fox, who had directed Lamb to build a theater according to high-class ideals. The city opened in April of 1910 and was well-received. After the city theater, Lamb would have a steady stream of theater work throughout the 1910s. His work over these years included the 1910 Washington Theater, another one for Fox, the 1911 Orpheum Theater, the National Theater or National Winter Garden Theater in 1911-1912, the Audubon Theater and Ballroom in 1912, the Vaudeville Hamilton Theater from 1912-1913, and the Regent in 1913 and the Strand in 1914, both of which we touched on in our last episode. The Regent was one of the first luxurious movie theaters in New York City, and the Strand was big and beautiful. Other large, notable Lamb-designed movie theaters located in the city's theater district included the Rialto from 1916, the Rivoli from 1917, and the Capitol from 1919. The first movie theater in the U.S. with more than 5,000 seats, and described by one writer as a, quote, monumental pile, the Capitol was first and foremost a movie house. That was something of a bold business decision at the time and the fact that the building's owners decided to operate it in this fashion squashed the theory held by many that the motion picture would never achieve such popularity as to rival the spoken drama. Architecturally, the capital was notable because of the manner in which so colossal an interior has been decorated to achieve the intimate effect essential to a successful theater. Lavish materials and ornamentation could be found throughout the building, marble walls, staircases and balusters, elaborate stucco and plaster ornamentation, carefully treated with soft colors, dark walnut woodwork, hand-painted murals of unusual interest and beauty. If that weren't enough evidence of Lamb's efforts to make it a place of sophistication, the theater also had a Jacobean men's smoking room and a Louis XV ladies' retiring room. Sadly, the capital was demolished in 1968. With his work throughout the 1910s, aptly categorized by New York's Landmarks Preservation Commission as his pre-1920 neoclassical or classically derived designs, by others as Adamesque, Lamb was honing his skills and refining his style for movie theaters. His design for the Capitol elevated the movie theater to a size and status not yet seen in cinemas up to that time, and it set the stage for the true movie palaces he, and others, would design in the 1920s. So far, as you might have noticed, all of our talk of Thomas Lamb has been limited to New York City. 
While it's where he got his start, and he was prolific there throughout his career, it was by no means the only place he worked. Because of the numerous theaters he designed in the 1910s, each one seemingly a little bit better than the one before it, Lamb was highly regarded as a movie theater architect by the time the new decade dawned, and his status would only increase throughout the 1920s. During this time, he truly became a nationally recognized architect. Lamb had established key relationships with several major theater chains, which gave him the opportunity to design numerous, high-profile theaters in major cities across America. While there are a great many we could go on about at length, I'll briefly profile just a few to give you an idea of the kinds of theaters he was designing. Around 1925, Lamb began to notice that the average moviegoer was no longer responding enthusiastically to his neoclassical Adamesque designs. Rather, there was an underlying demand for something more gay, more flashy. For this reason, I began to favor in my design an entirely different style, leaning towards the periods of Louis XVI and the very rich productions of the Italian Baroque style. This is definitely evidenced in many of Lamb's late 20s theaters. The Lowe's Midland Theater in Kansas City, Missouri, for example, was described by Ben Hall as Louis XVI with a vengeance. With assistance from architect Robert Bowler, Lamb designed the 4,000-seat theater for both motion pictures and stage shows. When the building was completed in 1927, it became the nation's third-largest theater, behind only two Manhattan theaters, Lamb's Capital and Walter W. Allschlager's Roxy. Decorative touches at the Midland included staircases with marble steps, risers, and newel posts, these last being topped with bronze torsiers. Marble gilts and walnut trim and wall treatments, and countless little plaster embellishments like volutes, masks, urns, cartouches, swags, seraphim, cupids, rosettes, shells, ribbons, foliates, even pineapples. These French Baroque Rococo interiors were designed by Emile M. Lenar, a member of Lamb's staff, and they were executed by Rambush Decorating Company of New York. It took 15 skilled sculptors and some hundred workmen to complete the dizzying array of decoration. The Kansas City Star reported that the interiors of the Lowe's Bidland represented at the time the most expensive application of ornamental plasterwork of any theater in the country. The National Register nomination for the building notes that the theater also had several engineering and architectural innovations first employed in theater design and later adopted elsewhere. It was the first theater ever to have introduced the cantilevered loge, a mezzanine level of seats where the audience's view for once wasn't obstructed by supporting columns. It also had the first complete cooling, heating, and ventilation system of any theater in the United States, and was unusual because of the integration of the ventilation system with the interior decorative plan. Lowe's Midland Theater was built at an estimated cost of $4.5 million, and somehow, miraculously, construction only took about a year. It opened on October 28, 1927, and for most of the next five decades it operated as a movie theater. It still stands in downtown Kansas City today and is a place for live music and theater. Thomas Lamb also did several theaters for the Lowe's chain. The one in Columbus, Ohio, which opened on March 17, 
1928, and thankfully still is in use today, is pretty incredible inside. We get to hear a description of the Ohio Theater in Thomas Lamb's own words. In the auditorium, one finds the side walls are divided into bays or sections. In the center of each, there is an elaborate shrine, as it were, of carved walnut and gold. This is surrounded by numerous coves which turn and miter upon each other in the most intricate manner, and being gilded reflect the light in as many directions as there are planes. But rising above these shrines, there is one vast dome of gold culminating in a star formation of rich relief ornament. This vast dome of gold is completely covered with modern painted ornamentation, a semi-natural, semi-conventional ornament of flowers, leaves, and birds. While this seems to grow naturally, nevertheless it yields, as it were, to a law of pattern and design. The ceiling gradually merges into a sounding board. This is one of the most original schemes ever produced in theater decoration. It is one vast surface of deep red, completely covered with stars of innumerable shapes and sizes, closely spaced, in fact, almost touching. It forms a mosaic of gold, silver, and red, but of such variation and such play of pattern that it defies the mind to discover the pattern on which it is built. Its effectiveness lies in its texture of metal stars splattered and superimposed upon a ground of red. This theater auditorium is probably as rich in interior as will be found in the country, and with all there is, created no feeling of gaudiness, that result which the decorator has most to fear. Lamb believed that centuries-old European influences and new modern elements could be combined successfully, and he felt that his design for the Ohio did just that. It contains the sumptuousness of Spain and the intricacy and construction of our modern art. An account from the theater's opening night gives an even further idea of its splendor. As forty handsome ushers, resplendent in brand new uniforms, directed the audience to the plushiest seats the American Seat Company has ever made, feet sank into luxurious carpeting. The bronze drinking fountain, stained glass chandeliers, lavish velvet draperies, and a specially built player piano caused further ripples of excitement as many hurried up the sweeping stairways to lean over the bronze railings of the mezzanine to catch the splendor below. The Columbus Association for the Performing Arts has been an excellent steward of the building since 1969. I think we can pretty much give them full credit for this movie palace still being stunning today. And they apparently branched out into other theater rehabs. So yeah, they kind of rock. Another theater that Lamb designed for Lowe's was the State Theater in Syracuse, New York, which opened in February of 1928. This was the first of several theaters Lamb would create in a style heavily influenced by Eastern architecture. It's variably been described as East Indian, Persian, Oriental, and having elements that were Hindu, Greek, Balinese, and European Byzantine Romanesque. So basically a smorgasbord of high style architecture from around the world. As Ben Hall noted, the state was the prototype of three oriental extravaganzas that made Lamb's early Adam efforts look like Quaker meeting houses. The subsequent similarly styled theaters were the Lowe's 175th Street and Lowe's 72nd Street in New York. According to Hall, the casual patron would have been hard put to tell the lobbies of the three theaters apart. 
the Romanesque hardtop auditoriums of Lowe's State in Syracuse and Lowe's 175th Street were identical and represented a great economy to the low chain because the same castings for ornamental plaster work, the same sets of detail drawings, identical carpeting and light fixtures, even the same elephants on the newel posts were used in all three. We'll revisit Lowe and the 175th Street Theater in a later episode of this series, but to give you just a smidgen of an idea of how great Lamb's work was for them, that theater and several others were part of what Lowe's dubbed their wonder theaters. But back to the state. The Grand Foyer, wrote Lamb in describing the theater in Syracuse, is like a temple of gold set with colored jewels, the largest and most precious of which is a sumptuous mural. It represents a festive procession all in oriental splendor, with elephants, horses, slaves, princes, and horsemen, all silhouetted against a deep blue night sky. It is pageantry in its most elaborate form, and immediately casts a spell on the mysterior and, to the occidental mind, of the exceptional. Passing into the inner foyers and the mezzanine promenade, one continues in the same Indo-Persian style, with elaborate ornamentation both in relief and in painting, all conspiring to create an effect thoroughly foreign to our Western minds. These exotic ornaments, colors, and scenes are particularly effective in creating an atmosphere in which the mind is free to frolic and becomes receptive to entertainment. The auditorium itself is also very much permeated by the Orient, but it is not pure and unadulterated like the foyers and vestibules. It is the European Byzantine Romanesque, which is the Orient as it came to us through the merchants of Venice, those great traders who brought the East and its art back to Europe in their minds as they brought the cargoes in their ships. As the National Register nomination for the state nicely sums it up, the interior is characterized by a sumptuous and stunning profusion of eclectic detailing. By sparing no expense in its appointment or design, it today is one of the finest examples of the fantasy architecture popular for movie theaters of the 1920s. In 1954, the State Theater went dark. By 1967, demolition was on the table and threatened for the next decade. A local grassroots effort, the Syracuse Area Landmark Theater, or SALT, saved the building in the late 70s, and thanks to them, today it's an amazing venue for live acts. Lamb also designed several theaters for vaudeville giants Benjamin Franklin Keith and Edward Albee and their Keith Albee Circuit, which was the premier vaudeville tour on the east coast of the United States. We'll talk about one of the theaters that was also for films and was completed in late 1928. Boston's 2900-seat BF Memorial Theater was opened in November 1928 after three years of construction. Built by Albee as a tribute to Keith, who had passed away in 1914, the reportedly $5 million theater was said to be a great advance over any other theater in the chain's more than 700 playhouses. Even though this theater is definitely a movie palace, at the time of its construction, it was also meant to be the home of vaudeville, and included backstage areas for actors and crew that were like lavish hotel accommodations. There were furnished rooms with private baths and showers, a gym, handball courts, nursery, laundry facilities, kitchen, beauty parlor, and barbershop. 
although they even tried to go solely vaudeville in March of 1929. That was quickly abandoned. By September 1929, they were back to movies only. Motion Picture News wrote a lovely description of the theater. Entering from any one of its three entrances, one comes to the great bronze doors, into the beautiful memorial hall, which rises to a great vaulted dome. It gives a dazzling impression of light diffused against ivory white marble and gold. It was a wide, sweeping, yet intimate place. There are 16 huge marble columns on either side of the hall. White marble rail runs around the back of the auditorium, and from it the eye sweeps over the series of seats and spacious aisles to the elaborate proscenium arch, to the magnificent boxes with richly carved baldachins and golden draperies. The house is carpeted in black and gold, the upholstery is of deep red and gold, and the theater decorations are of ivory and pure gold leaf, thousands upon thousands of dollars worth of it. There is no gilt paint in the theater, every bit of gold work being of gold leaf. The BF Memorial Theater also had a general lounge room intended for both men and women patrons of the theater. This room was paneled in rich woods, luxuriously furnished, with a great Florentine fireplace in the center. There were also gender-separated smoking rooms, cosmetic rooms, telephone rooms, and reading and writing rooms. One large smoking room was paneled in mahogany, furnished in heavy leather. It was as luxurious, as comfortable as the lounge of any metropolitan club. The building consistently operated as a movie theater until 1978. Then it became an opera house and served as such until 1990. From 90 until 2004, the building sat vacant and suffered a fair amount of damage during that time. Thankfully, the building reopened in 2004 after a gigantic, like $38 million gigantic, renovation, and since then has been the home of Broadway, ballet, and more. As noted in the Boston Landmarks Commission study for the building, the Keith Memorial Theater exhibits both Baroque and Adamesque ornament. Its facade and ceiling treatments represent the flamboyant Baroque style Lamb adopted in the late 1920s in an attempt to surpass prior commissions and create the ultimate movie palace fantasy. Lamb certainly succeeded, as today the theater ranks among the nation's finest theaters in terms of opulence, architectural quality, and interior layout. Lamb also did theater design work for Fox and Warners. The 4,651-seat Fox Theater in San Francisco, completed in 1929, was one of several theaters built by the studio. Others were in Brooklyn, Detroit, St. Louis, and Atlanta. Lamb designed the lobby's picture gallery to be an exact duplicate of a chapel at Versailles, and the frieze in the theater lobby is a copy, at one-third scale, of the frieze decorating the choir gallery in the cathedral at Florence. It was another great example of Lamb embracing all things European, so much so that a brochure for the theater referred to it as the Great Castle of Splendor. Sadly, that theater was torn down in 1963. Warner's Stanley Theater in Utica, New York, on the other hand, is still standing. But like San Fran's Fox, it does a great job of demonstrating Lamb's expertise at incorporating sophisticated, lavish styles into his movie palace designs. The Stanley was referred to as Mexican Baroque, while at the same time it had modern Spanish elements. 
Others thought that the decorative elements of small rich patterns and textures alternate with plain surfaces to create a convincing American interpretation of a Renaissance palace. It was completed in 1928 for around $1.5 million and originally had seating for more than 3,000 people. It survived urban renewal and some years of neglect to become a premier performing arts space, thanks to the nonprofit Stanley Center for the Arts. This has by no means been an exhaustive examination of Thomas Lamb or his work. We barely scratched the surface, and hopefully we were able to give you a good idea of what he accomplished and how important he is in the history of movie palace architecture. By the time Lamb died in February of 1942, he had been involved in one way or another in the design of more than 300 theaters around the world. He was not only present, but extremely influential in basically all of the early major movie theater periods, from the vaudeville stage houses in the 1900s, to the early massive movie theaters of the 1910s, to the opulent movie palaces of the 1920s, to the sleek art deco houses of the early 1930s. Lamb designed, and designed well, in every era, and he particularly thrived designing movie palaces in the late 20s. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. And I hope you'll join us for our next episode, the third in our series in the Movie Palace, when we'll talk about John Eberson, probably the other single largest figure in the history of Movie Palace architecture. Until then, may your seats be ever in the center. 